it's gone into the water. And not just with black girls, and not just with black girls, but with East Asian girls and South Asian girls and with white girls and nerdy girls and plump girls and tall girls and thin girls and boys and straight and not straight and all that. You go, oh, wow. Just my presence has made a difference. Hi, this is Seven Stages, a podcast from The Stage sponsored by Audible. And that was Noma Dumezwani on playing Hermione Granger in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, one of the most highly anticipated, closely scrutinised, heavily awarded plays this country's ever known. I don't think I've ever felt more excited in a theatre than it was Saturday the 23rd of July 2016 as I prepared to watch the play for the first time, settling down for a whole day back in that amazing world. It's an era-defining play and there was a lot at stake in terms of living up to fan expectations and all of that, but I don't think anyone expected the big talking point would be racism. When it was announced that Noma would be playing Hermione, all the bile that bubbled up on social media and forums and from those weird corners of, you know, the permanently outraged commentariat, it was just insane. People were saying she shouldn't be playing Hermione because Hermione was a white character, that it was the PC brigade gone mad, all these just plainly racist things. I was reading some of the coverage before I talked to Noma, it's just so horrible, an extraordinary kind of eruption of racist bluster. But as you will hear, and as you heard in that quote, the grace and the good spirit with which Noma endured it all is just incredible. She's turned it into this vehicle for inspiration, for inspiring young women. And naturally, she was fantastic in the role and she won herself a second Olivier Award. But besides Harry Potter, Noma's had an incredible stage career and an incredible life, from being born in Swaziland to winning her first Olivier for A Raisin in the Sun. I chatted to her while she was in New York, uh, contending with an internet connection that kept calling me unstable and a nostalgia-inducing soundscape of locked-down Manhattan. So, here's Noma. So, we start simply, which is, what was the first show you remember seeing? I would say the first play that I can consciously remember was a theatre and education company coming to the school. I can't remember, but that's what keeps flopping through my head. I'm kind of going, oh, right, okay, they're doing a thing for us here and everyone's enjoying it, we're all enjoying it. And I think I quite like that they did a workshop or something like that. But consciously going, what is the first play that meant anything? No, but I do remember going to see um, a Chekhov on a school trip, uh, which was at the National, which one I cannot remember. I cannot remember. I've never been a huge fan of Chekhov, and I think that was to do with that <laughs> time. Well, this is interesting. So, I mean, because obviously it was a, it was a pretty turbulent childhood for you. I think you were born in Swaziland yeah. and then, but moved around quite a lot, quite often for a while. I think for kids, it's, it doesn't feel turbulent, if that makes sense. I kind of go, I think from the outside, it looks it, because I kind of go, wow, that's... When I look at my story written down, I go, wow, that is an interest. You just go with what's going on and parents are moving around. And then you find out years later why they're moving around. Yeah. So, so why, why were they moving around? Well, OK, this is what I understand very roughly. I was born in 69 and my mum and my dad had left South Africa uh, a year before that. Or just or I was kind of born on the way, if I understand it correctly. And they, in exile, because of apartheid, they went from South Africa to Swaziland, and I was born there. Two years later, my sister was born in Botswana. 
And then I remember we lived in uh, Kenya and Uganda before my mum and my dad split up. So it was them being in exile. It was political. My dad was with the Communist Party, which at the time seemed to be worse than the ANC. And when you understand how bad the ANC were dealt with at that time in terms of politics, when, as we look back now, Mandela was called a terrorist. You kind of go, all these things kind of go, wow, that's that's a cycle, that's a cycle that my family was living in. And it was chaos and it was it was turbulent. But kids just go with what they know. There's the wonderful Maya Angelou quote, which I'm going to paraphrase horribly, which is basically something along the lines of children are, will always be resilient until they know the alternative. And that's the truth. You will just go with what you know. And your gods and your goddesses or your mum and your dad or the people looking after you. And we travelled and we arrived in England. At, yeah, seven coming up to eight. And it was just living because we just travelled. And it's really weird for me. I, I worked out that... Roughly every three years, I get twitchy about where I'm living. Roughly every three years, I say, oh. And I look back and I go, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. ingrained from a very early age. Yeah, but the, the irony of that is I'm trying to look for a home. I'm still trying to look for a home. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I mean, so, I mean, looking at the list of, of countries, it, it, you know, it's about five countries before you were seven. And then your mum took you and your sister to England. But but why did she end up in, because you ended up in quite kind of rural Suffolk. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we ended up in Suffolk, babe. So first it was Stowe Market, and then we ended up in, living in Ipswich and Felixstowe, and Felixstowe being the majority of it for school. So my mum, uh, with two children, uh, coming to the UK, and it was a choice. It was a big uh, choice. And at that point, her and her, she was leaving my dad, who she'd been so in love with, but he was, she puts it, he did the theory and I did the practicality of communism at the time, and it wasn't working. And then they were going to, they were due to move again. And this is what I found out recently. They were due to move again. And she went, I can't do it. I cannot. Because I think it was going to the, one of the Arab states. I can't remember. And she just went, no, I, I, I'm, I'm the one who's working. I'm doing this. I can't do that there. She had one friend in England called Shima, an Asian lady who she'd met in Uganda. Um, there were teachers together. That's why I remember, because when we arrived, it was like three, we arrived three months before Idi Amin had, had been toppled. And um, but he'd also um, chucked out all the African Asians from uh, Uganda, and I believe Shima was one of them. So my mum, all I know is at that age we just arrived and we, we went from an airport. We arrived in England. Everything had changed. Colours had changed. Weather had changed. It was an adventure. She did. She hadn't told Shima because she didn't know what was going to be happening. It's like let's just get out of here. Let's take a punt. I know one person in England. She was interviewed. I don't remember that particular moment in time, but she was interviewed and she said, and then I gave them Shima's number. And Shima said, and she said, um, we're, we're here to visit Shima on holiday. Shima didn't know, but Shima said, yes, they are. It was like an angel moment because mum just went, I know someone in, in England. Let's try for it. How, do, you, do you remember much about that move? And how, how did you find it when you got here? What I do remember is... It literally was cold. It literally was grey. It was from sunshine and colours and heat to greyness and wrapped up warm and people pinched in different colours. People literally being different colours. Um, that's what it felt like arriving in England, kind of going, oh, this is it. The world is totally and utterly changed. Dad's not here anymore. Mama's here. What are we doing? But we're just going to be with mum. We're just going to be with mum. Whatever she needs us to do, we'll do. And how, uh, amid all that, did you find... Theater. Thank fuck for my mother. Um, because ultimately, that's why I will always say, however I may have grown up 
feeling about her going, oh, she doesn't understand me. I look back at it now, at this half century, I go, gosh, she was amazing, actually. And it was, she needed to work. And that's the time when, as a, an asylum seeker, you could work. I look back at that time and go, fucking hell. If we'd arrived now or five years ago, because I do stuff with, for Women for Refugee Women set up by Natasha Walter, and just realising that, that about the women who put in Yarlswood Detention Centre, if we'd arrived in exactly the same circumstances, we would be in a detention centre. So she could work, but what she, she needed us to do when we were on um, holidays is do workshops. So she'd find workshops. So there was like a, a music workshop or a little drama workshop in Ipswich. And they just kind of gently, they were great. Fun things to play with, learning. That was my in. And there was a particular workshop, which is the Walls of Youth Theatre at the age of 13. That's where I found my theatrical, oh, I like this stuff. I like doing this stuff. So you applied for drama schools, didn't quite work. And so you, you, for a few years, weren't actually, you know, you didn't start immediately working as an actor, even though you wanted to. Yeah, no, not at all. And it's interesting because I think by the time I left the youth theatre, I was like, shall I be an actor? I don't want to be an actor. Well, let me try. Let me try audition. Um, I didn't get in, but for two years I tried on the train. I didn't get in. And then I ended up working in a PR company thinking that was going to be it. And then got made redundant from that. Bored, because I couldn't understand why the hell I'd been made redundant, because I was like one of the great crew. Um, but they were offering me a lesser job. And I went, no, no, I won't, I won't do this. I will, I will I'll find myself. I was already here. Why don't you... Uh, anyway, issues. There were seven of us who had, I had that day. And then it was one of those... Uh, yeah, one of those sessions, I think, of the 23, 24, going, what do I want to do? Oh, I've always liked the drama thing. Let me go back to workshops again. Let me go back. Workshops were my... I would look at it, workshops with my saving grace, just to kind of dip in. But working and doing whatever waitressing and cafe jobs I could do and signing on when you could sign on without any guilt. But then it, it worked out, so you got an agent and you, you, know, you started getting work. Well, do you know what? What, worked, what happened is I did a thing called... At the time, it's called, I can't remember what her name, full name was, but Moira. She ran this thing called the, the Casting Couch. And it was... I don't know whether you heard of... I mean, not the old word of the casting, but it was a, a group for people to come in and do their presentation in front of act, uh, directors and agents and blah, blah, blah. But I, I met my mentor. If she liked it, she'd go, right, now go and work with Tony on your piece. And then he can see if you're going to go through to the actual thing. And he's, he's the guy who's, who made me realise that I could do the acting. And he made me realise that I should do the acting. And made me realise that I've got to work harder. But the opportunities are there for me if I want to do it. He was in the... Um, it was is it Zeffirelli at the Old Vic? Wow. Um, with Judy Danchester, who was in that company. And then you go, wow. And then... And even still now, and he says, one day, I still need you to play. He says, he, he says I need you to play uh, Mrs. Malaprop and Cleopatra. It's got to be a double bell. That's what it's <laughs> got to be. We've just got to, they've just got to say, I love you. You're still thinking like that. Okay. Do you know what I mean? He's the one I always Can't go to if that. I'm in doubt. Yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? Let's see what could happen. He said, I've got the story worked out. Um, but he's the one for me who changed everything for me. What was the first show that you... This is a second question now. What was your first professional production? A theatre and education company called Travelling Light, based in Bristol. And I was in my mid-20s or something like that. I, it was around that time with Tony. 
going off to Bristol. And that's why I got my equity card. That's why I say it was my first profit, because I did that gig and I got my equity card and it dropped through the post about three months later. And I was so excited. and went, this is it. I am now an actor going around the schools, telling a story about Cuba. It was what it was. It was an experience. Yeah, it was an experience. But, you know, for most people, that's probably their first access to performance and, you know, it might have sparked a few careers as well. Well, if I go back to the first question was, what was your first thing of seeing theatre? It was a a theatre and education show at school. Yeah. So fast forward, you know, a few years and you've done, you know, since then, not to uh, condense an incredible career too much but you know associate role at the rsc huge numbers of roles at the rsc at the national you want an olivier for raisin in the sun harry potter um you took over linda we'll talk about you know all of these incredible things what's your can you you know this is question three pick a favorite yeah i looked at that i'm going i'm not going to pick a favorite no no (laughs) way i will pick experiences i will pick experiences because i realized for me a lot of my joy comes in the process of making theatre. Let's go back to A Raisin in the Sun. I saw the first version of that, and it was at the Young Vic, before they had the renovations, and I remember watching Lenny James and, and this extraordinary woman called Novella Nelson. I went, who the fuck is that? Every time she was on stage, I was just like, I just like I'm just glued. And then was it a year later, I was doing a show at Chichester and coming towards the end of it and David Land was in town and said, are you doing anything after this job? And I was like, no. Well, you're going to be back in London. Can I meet you to come and do a raisin in the sun? I was like, well, you've already done it. I don't, mate, I don't do re- revamps. And that's kind of been a thing for me and it is a, a tenant of mine. It's like, I don't do revamps because um, I want to be there at the vanguard at the beginning of it all. And he went, no, it's not quite a revamp. The only thing that's going to be the same is the set. And um, Novella and Lenny are coming back. I was like, what, she's coming back? That woman's coming back to do... Yeah, we know Lenny James is brilliant, but that woman, can I just be in the room with that woman? Got the thing, fantastic. In the first week in rehearsals, I remember she scared the bejesus out of me because I was being very English and being very polite. And I'd never done this before, but I think I was in such awe of her. I was like, oh, um, so... So I'm going to move the chair and I hope that's okay. Girl, you just do what you want. I will react to it. Don't tell me what you're going to do. I was like, oh my God, which is absolutely the right thing. I hate actors telling me what they are going to do. And I think I was just so in awe of her. I just went, she's an older lady. I don't want all these fucking, she's an actor. She's there to do the job. That's why, why would I even? And I was like, oh my God, she terrified me and I love it because I want to meet that. I just wanted to meet that energy. And she became a lifelong friend. It's interesting as well, because, well, because it's, you know, because the Olivier was in 2006, but it took, I mean, I think in terms of, like, wider notice of of your skill as an actor, it, it was quite a mm. while. And, and I think that, obviously, Harry Potter was a, was a big thing just in terms of profile. But yeah. there was also, you know, 2016, there was... Then Harry Potter announcement. There was then Linda came pretty much straight away afterwards. So, so this was Kim Cattrall was cast in Penelope Skinner's play at the Royal Court. Michael Longhurst directing. Yeah. Eight yeah. days before it opened, she had to pull out for, for medical reasons, and you stepped in. Um, and so you've yeah. got 
uh, press night script in hand, which must have just been a really strange experience. <laughs> but then these just incredibly glowing Surreal. reviews and everyone going, oh, oh my yeah. God, they we pulled it off. We we've... pulled it off. Yeah. Yeah. But also going, <laughs> we've forgotten to notice for the last 10 years how good Noma Dumez when he is. But it was, I think I really appreciate you putting it like that because it is like, so I got that phone call on a Wednesday and I didn't see meet the company until Friday afternoon because I was already booked on the Thursday and Friday. And the, the Thursday was for me to decide whether I wanted to do it. So Thursday morning, I went, OK, I'll go for it. Because I'd done the reading for Penelope and Michael like months ago when they were experimenting with an idea of possible casting, which wasn't quite right. And we all understood that. But it was a great place to be. You know, it's another workshop. How much? Great. 80 quid from the Royal Court for the day. Thank you very much. Um, paying my bills and getting some lunch this week. Um, and, oh, no, you can play Linda for the reading. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So, of course, with nothing to lose, you give it everything because it's a workshop and you love it. And the play's great. And then this phone call comes again, look. And I already knew at the reading that Miss Cottrell was already um, uh, positioned to, to be playing um, Linda. So it was all just an exercise as we do. And then this phone call comes on Wednesday and I said, look, okay, I'll confirm Friday, Thursday morning. I confirm Thursday morning, but I won't see you till Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon, go in, meet the company. And I remember this being the scariest moment for me because if any one of them was not happy with me being there, I think I would have buckled. And they were all so fucking lovely. And that's what I've got to really reiterate with this story is that I didn't do that job on my own. And then we blocked Friday afternoon blocked Saturday. Michael and Katie Rudd, his associate at the time, came to give me all the information, the research work that they'd done for the last four weeks on the Sunday. Monday was the first day of tech. And then Tuesday, yeah. And then Wednesday was supposed to be the first day of that being cancelled, so we opened on the Thursday. But I will always go back to those actors. We made a fucking show. We made a fucking show. We really did. And Loved it. And it was like my first leading lady. And the only way I could have got my first leading lady was that way of getting it. Yeah. <laughs> By I mean, trauma. Uh, what the fuck? Okay, let's do it. <laughs> as if as if acting wasn't enough about luck and being in the right place at the right time. But, you know, that just adds a whole new level of jeopardy to it. But interestingly as well, it's similar. You know, that is the similar way that you got the Harry Potter gig because that was through from a workshop originally wasn't it yeah so don't knock workshops guys if it feels good go for it but don't expect anything out of it I think I think the thing with these things is ultimately the story the real story behind it is don't expect anything just be present and do them and again with Harry Potter it was just do you want to do these workshops and everyone kept hearing about these workshops and oh we can't take it about anything we can't talk about anything but John and Stephen are doing these workshops but you've got to go to Sonia Friedman's office and when you go to Sonia Friedman's office read the play you go fucking hell you're doing Harry Potter you're doing a play of Harry Potter and then you just go, yeah, all right, because I want to work with John and Stephen. And let's see. And Jack Thorne. I get to meet Jack Thorne finally. And um, that great, that week was great. That week was absolutely, there was literal magic being in that room. In a, in a fucking studio space, excuse my language, in a huge studio space in um, Kennington. And it's like, this is amazing. This is amazing. Um, 
we just had fun. And then, oh, do you want to come and do the next one? Yeah, do you want to come and do the next one? Yeah, okay, cool, great. That next one's based on reading, the next one's just based on movement. And it's just, we're just here to serve the play. That's what, for me, workshops are always about. How much did they prep you and how much did you anticipate everything that would follow, the kind of big eruption that came after that? (laughs) None. No way. No way. I did not. (laughs) None of it. What I do this, I'm kind of laughing and I'm like, what? Um, I was aware there will be questions. What I do know is that there was, it was the last, it was the last big workshop and it was uh, three weeks. I was there for three, it was a four week workshop. There was a conversation at the end of the week. Cause I remember we did the reading. I was like, oh wow, whoever gets this, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. Cause I'm thinking I'm too old for a start. I'm too dark for a start. I mean, so many different things were going into my head, but this has been wonderful. Cause of course this is a major West End show. They're going to get somebody young. They're going to get somebody mixed race. They're going to get, these were the stories that were going on through my head. They're going to get everybody else, not me. And then when John and Sonia came at the end of the election saying, we want you to do it. I was like, excuse me, shut the fuck up. That's amazing. Uh, can I think about it? Because I was going, and it was a conversation to be had because I think for me was, yes, I love to do this, but the idea of doing it for a year, no way. I've never done one job for a year. I've really got to think about this. And then that happened, but that, that news wasn't out. And then Linda arrived and that news went out. And then a week after we'd opened, I believe, then the news about Harry Potter officially came out. So it was like, that was a collision. And in terms of spirituality and the universe looking after you, I needed Linda to happen. I needed Linda, when I look back on it, Linda needed to happen for me to enjoy that energy and go, what the fuck's this energy? Because it's coming. It's coming with the Harry Potter train. I think if I just met that energy with the Harry Potter train, then I think I would have been cowed. I really would have been cowed. But this was like, oh, right, this is what's possible. This is what's possible. Four years later now, and, and you've, you've played the role on Broadway as well, what have you kind of taken away from that, the, the histrionics of it and, and the scrutiny and the, and the joy of it and the, you know, fantastic reviews? And, ha- you know, it's obviously, you, you know, you've said this yourself, that there are, there are girls in that audience who are seeing you on stage and it's going to change their life. Ha- what have you taken away from that over the last four years? First and foremost, it was that, oh, wow, there is something radical is being done in the way only the stage can do, that theatre can do. The risk that John and Jack and JK and Sonia and Colin, our producers, took in putting me as Hermione, they changed my life. That job, that experience has changed my life. I, I learnt to still find the joy of stepping out on stage a year after we started, which I think was for me the biggest surprise of all, because my biggest terror was, am I gonna get bored? But when you have someone like Paul Thornley playing your husband, Ron, you're not gonna get bored. You're not gonna get bored because there is a twinkle in his eye. I may have been tied around it and you may have been, oh, we're exhausted. This like, do you, feels like day 200 of the same week. Um, here we go again. And then as soon as you step your foot onto the stage, you go, ah, there we are. And the reaction it is, it is that magical. Oh, Tim, I can't explain it, but it is quite magical being on, being on stage and that collective 
we're all in this together. That's why it's going to feel so weird coming out of this lockdown. What will that experience be like when it's really felt again? Because there is a there is a church communal feeling when you everyone's all in it. To all, because I always believe the last character to arrive is the audience. So you know that it's gone into the water, and not just with black girls, and not just with black girls, but with East Asian girls, but with and South Asian girls, and with white girls, and nerdy girls, and plump girls, and tall girls, and thin girls, and boys, and straight, and not straight, and all that. You go, oh wow, wow! Just my presence has made a difference. And why I always say those three outsiders met on that train, and it was perfect. Ron and his family. Hermione from the other world, this kid who'd been put under the stairs. And for me to be a black woman, not a black girl, but a black woman who's grown with a child, being able to represent Hermione grown with children. Yeah, okay, I can do that. That's great. But then to see the reactions of people going, well, then my job is done. So I remember the first year um, we finished in London and it was in August before I was going to be going, we're sorting out, going out to America. Um, my friend Justin G. Essien was sat in the garden and she went, Noma, you could have been awful. <laughs> yeah. And we just howled out laughing because that's the truth. Whatever people were thinking about, oh my God, she's black, she's this, she shouldn't play that. <gasps> I could have been awful. That for me is the biggest nightmare. <laughs> Thank fuck I wasn't awful. At least I told a story. So... Yeah, yeah, I'm grateful for that gig because it's opened up the world for me. So, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Well, which leads nicely onto the next question, which is what are you working on at the moment? So, before everything got closed down in the world, I was doing a, a, a TV series. I was filming for the first time in LA. Um, LA is a thing. Oh, my God, it's a different world. It's based on a book by this amazing woman called Alyssa Nutting, called Made for Love. Um, it's this weird, wonderful thing. So I get to work with um, Billy Magnuson, who is quite fantastic as a person and as an actor, and a young guy called Caleb Foote, who I didn't know before, but I've fallen in love with him. He's brilliant. The great Christine Milioti um, is uh, playing our lead. Um, Mr. Ray Romano, I have no scenes with him, but he's in the show playing her dad. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I'm in a show with Ray Romano. That's amazing. So who knows? That's for HBO Max. Who knows when that will come out? So that's what I was doing in this moment in time. So question five then, what was the one show that got away? So is there one that either as an, you know, an audition or, was, or even as an audience member... I had an opportunity to see Jerusalem three times, three different times. I remember those three different times. And everyone would keep talking about this performance. And I'd go, oh, no, I missed it. Sorry, I can't make it. Oh, no, oh, but, yeah. Uh. I'd go, why did you not go and see that? You had an opportunity three times. And I was scared of seeing Mr. Ryland's performance. I keep thinking about this now. Because I love great performances and I find they they give you food but I think at that point I was going well if I'm not good enough and I see someone who's just wiping the floor with it or what's the point of carrying on what is the point of doing this and all the other lovely actors who feel this way who go through this is where oh you idiot you should have seen that you should have seen that performance he was so inspiring he was so inspiring but in my head I was going I don't want to be scared I don't want to be scared because and that's what I mean about self-sabotage and so to all actors young or old Fuck it, scare yourself, man. Scare yourself. Because I am I am disappointed I missed that one. 
Um, all right then. Question six. So you've got an empty space. You've got an unlimited budget. What do you stage now? You get Jasmine Lee Jones. You get Jeremy O'Harris. You get Danny Lee Winter. You get Jesse Buckley. These are all people I've met at different times. You get Joe Arkley, a young actor who I haven't seen in years, but I think he's fucking brilliant. You get a room of people who I think are brilliant. If I was a producer of this thing and I go, right, we have a week of putting on something, um, of making ideas and then two weeks of rehearsal and then and a week of putting them on. I just go, just go for your life, whatever you want. What, what do you want to share? What do you want to tell the story is? But I want, I want people to be scared. I want people to push boundaries. Like there is nothing you cannot say. You get designers in, you get Tom Scott, Jack Knowles, lighting. I just want to go, you're the best at this moment and you're free at this moment. What could happen? What could happen? Why, why can't we cross culture? What would see? And it's just an experiment. I think life is just an experiment. I'm not about aspic. I am about kind of re-seeing things in a different way. And if you're going to do, okay, say, go back to Mrs. Malaprop and Cleopatra, well, that's an interesting combination already. This is what I love about Tony. He goes, where, where can we go? Lateral thoughts with that. That's already an interesting combination of characters to put against each other. Because as an actor, what will they make me do? What will they make me reveal about myself? And I kind of go, there's a bit of therapy in this job. And it's, it's not, not in a selfish way, but understand that there's a lot of stuff that we're all working out. So, guys, put you all together. That's so interesting that you say that there's therapy in that. Because, I mean, the, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was the moment where it seemed like your, your personal life really fed into kind of the performance which was um a human being died that night which was the play it was a hamster theater and it was um well it basically it took you to south africa and it and it reunited (laughs) you with your dad after 30 years so what was that play tell me about that that was amazing it was nicholas wright um uh play wrote from a book um based uh on the character not based so the woman i played in the play uh professor pumla Medica Zela, an extraordinary woman who'd worked on the Truth and Reconciliation Committee with Archbishop Tutu and Mandela had asked her to be on that group board of people to oversee it. And I remember going, this is amazing. This is fun. I didn't know anything about this. Read her book, which is A Human Being Died That Night, on which the play is based on that the Nick wrote. And it's a two-hander and I got to play with Matthew Marsh. Again, it's who's, who are you playing with? Um, I remember that job being so fucking hard. And I will say this because Matthew and Jonathan know how I feel or what I was like. I was awful. In rehearsals, I was absolutely awful because I was scared shitless. And again, that word of self-sabotage is interesting. This is how I saw it. This I, was, I saw two white men telling me, a black woman, how I should be thinking about this character. And the actor in me was like, how <gasps> dare you how dare you now i've spoken to matthew and jonathan about that subsequently but what i did is i self-sabotaged i went well fuck it they're telling me what to think i'm not pushing my way through i was closing up as opposed to going well what are you talking about what do you mean so jump cut to the show opens up downstairs at the Hampstead. we do really well and it's a fascinating piece of theater because it is about black and white south africa the secret the head of the secret police uh, Eugene de Kock, which Matthew plays, and I'm playing Pumla, this black woman. So you've got so many levels going off. 
So we get to take this play to South Africa and I've been resistant. I was scared of going to South Africa as a South African who didn't speak South African and wasn't South African. I did not want to feel other again in the place that I'm supposed to be. This name, Nema Wushe, Tandiwe Dumezweni. And people did see that name and they started speaking to me in either Osa or Zulu and I had to go, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't speak. Just in Germany. How, how are you? How are you doing? Good. Yeah. Um, again, that feeling of other. So I was resisting it a lot. What came out of the resisting was, well, I can't, I can't go to South Africa for seven weeks because my child's got to go with me. Eric said, we'll pay for the child. Well, my child needs to be looked after while I'm doing the show. So my mum's got to come. He said, we'll pay for your mum to come. I was like, oh, fuck, I've got to do it. The best fucking thing that ever happened to me because I got to see my dad which was never gonna happen. It was never gonna happen if I had said no to that job. And my child at that point was six years old and she'd known, and I, she said, where's your father? I'd gone, I don't know, I think he's around, I have no idea. And it's extraordinary. And it was the, the first theatre show that he'd seen and based on South African politics at the Fugard Theatre. And I just, I was in awe that, I, I, I would say, I remember going, I just need to be good for my dad tonight. And I think, I do feel it was like one of the best performances I've given because I just going, I just knew there was just one person in the audience. I just, as long as I could tell the truth for them. And he was blown away by the production. Yeah, and the stories. Matthew and I were also able to meet Eugene de Kock in Pretoria prison before um, he was released. I don't know what's happened to him since then, but that was an extraordinary time. So that job was magical. That job was absolutely magical. We're at the last question. Which, question yeah. seven, and you already said you don't want to play along with it, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Is there a show that you've seen that you'd happily watch on a loop for the rest of time? But I wouldn't put it on loop, though. I wouldn't put it on loop, you see, but because I, I think there's so... Why, why I'm, I'm pausing it and going, I think there's so much more to come out. There's so much more exciting things to come out. And I keep going on about... Jasmine Lee Jones's play, The Seven Methods of Keelan Kylie I was like, who the fuck is this? I remember watching it again, I've got to read it and I still have to read it because it was just blown my way. The performances were extraordinary. Um, and I was like, I remember going to see it on their last matinee and I bumped into Adjua Ando and we were both going, yeah, I've got to go and see this play because everyone we love is talking about it and we ended up sitting next to each other. And I, this is what I felt like. I felt like at the end of that performance, our jaws were wide open, a gag, going, wow, from the direction, from the lighting sound. And just this realisation that these babies, these 20-year-olds, had made something quite seminal, meaning I, I heard their voices. In my head, I was going, these voices should be heard in the next 20 years. If they're not around in the next 20 years, life has gone weird, life has gone strange, or they made great choices and are leaving it because they should absolutely be in theatre, not as black people, not as people of colour. Of course, it's all part of them, but as artists, as artists. And I think I was one of those um, older people going, oh, that's a very provocative title. I'm not too sure how I feel about that title. And then I watch the fucking thing and I go, that's genius. If you understand what the play is, then you absolutely understand what the title is. And let me get off my high horse of trying to judge something before I've seen it. Um, it's just her voice is so clear. It was so clear. So for I'm just going to be, I'm so aware that that's going to be the challenge for her. So if I 
Jasmine, Jazz, listen to this, we listen to this. If there's any way I can support you as an artist, let me know because it should not be a struggle for you. It will be a struggle as we all go through it, but know that there are elders around for all of you, all of those people who made that production. We are here, we are waiting for your voices to keep pushing out. So it's not that I want it on loop, but I want to see, okay, let me put it this way. I want to see the work that she's going to do in the next 20 years. That's a fantastic answer. God um, bless you. I think I've lost you again. No, I think you're. I think we're all right. We're all good. We're all good now. Yeah, all good. Oh no, I spoke too soon. <laughs> well, we lost the internet connection just as our conversation was ending. But isn't she an extraordinary person? Um, this podcast is sponsored by Audible, who have been my saving grace during lockdown and my state-sanctioned daily walks. As well as their audiobooks, they've got loads of audio plays too, including an amazing piece I saw at Edinburgh last year called Until the Flood by Dale Orlandersmith. It's based on interviews following the 2014 shooting of black teenager Michael Brown by white police officer Darren Wilson, and Orlandersmith turns herself into all these characters to bring alive a community haunted by injustice and just desperate for change. It's an extraordinary solo performance, which is why we gave it the Stages Edinburgh Award, and it's amazing to hear it in this audio form. And you can listen for free with a 30-day trial at audible.co.uk forward slash until the flood, and then prices start at $7.99 a month after 30 days, and it renews automatically. But that's it for this episode. I will be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>